The lighting of the Hanukkah lamps heralded the fact that through many difficult centuries of exile, the luminous nature of Jewish bravery would blaze forth. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 43, Churchill's Hanukkah. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. In October of 1941, Winston Churchill visited Harrow's, the school he had attended as a boy. The previous 10 months had been the most perilous in Britain's history, when France fell and Britain stood alone. At this point, the worst was past, and the United States would enter the war in six weeks. In honor of Churchill, the students added a stanza to the traditional school song. They added, Not less we praise in darker days the leader of our nation, and Churchill's name shall win acclaim from each new generation. For you have power in danger's hour, our freedom to defend, sir. Though long the fight, we know that right will triumph in the end, sir. Churchill spoke to his fellow alumni about the war, and then he himself concluded, saying, quote, You sang here a verse of a school song. You sang that extra verse written in my honor, which I was very greatly complimented by and which you have repeated today. But there is one word in it I want to alter. I wanted to do so last year, but I did not venture to. It is the line, not less we praise in darker days. I have obtained the headmaster's permission to alter darker to sterner, not less we praise in sterner days. Do not let us speak of darker days. Let us speak rather of sterner days. These are not dark days. These are great days. The greatest days our country has ever lived. And we must all thank God that we have been allowed, each of us according to our stations, to play a part. End quote. What did Churchill mean? These were not dark days? Were those past months not, in the phrase of a recent movie about Churchill, England's darkest hour? Churchill's words, I think, rightly understood, tell us something significant about the nature of heroism and also about the very sanctity of our souls. One of the most interesting aspects about the traditional Jewish way of reading Hebrew scripture is the belief that we are not only studying true stories from the past, but also that these tales embody patterns in Jewish history. The phrase in rabbinic texts is ma'ase avot siman libanim, the actions of the fathers are assigned to the children. A poetic expression of this idea can be found in a poem by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, reflecting on his visit to a Jewish cemetery. The poem is not entirely positive about the Jewish people, but one paragraph about how Jews see the world is, I think, somewhat fetching. Longfellow writes, For in the background figures vague and vast of patriarchs and of prophets rose sublime, and all the great traditions of the past they saw reflected in the coming time. This is exactly right, and an interesting example can be found in the biblical passage we ponder today. Numbers chapter 7 begins by describing the moment, and it came to pass on the day that Moses had made the end of setting up the tabernacle. We are told of the Nisim, princes or political leaders of each tribe, now bringing offerings to dedicate, inaugurate, sanctify the newly created altar. Verse 11. And the Lord said unto Moses, They shall present their offering, each prince on his day, for the dedication of the altar. The Hebrew for dedication is Chanukah. The chapter then goes on to describe in great detail how a different leader brought the same exact offering each day for this inauguration of the altar, or in Hebrew, Chanukat Hamizbeach. Note the word Chanukah, because the holiday with that word marks a similar inauguration that took place during the Second Temple period. When Judah the Maccabee and his Hasmonean forces conquered the temple 
from the Hellenistic promoters of paganism. They proceeded to purify the sanctuary, but encountered a conundrum and unresolvable question of Jewish ritual. What to do with the altar? A pagan altar in the temple should be destroyed, but this altar had originally been used to worship the God of Israel when the second temple was first constructed. How could they keep it, but how could they not? The solution is described in the book of Maccabees, which is not part of the Jewish biblical canon, but is a very interesting source of information. Quote, They deliberated what to do about the altar of burnt offering which had been profaned, and they thought it best to tear it down, lest it bring reproach upon them, for the Gentiles had defiled it. So they tore down the altar and stored the stones in a convenient place on the temple hill until there should come a prophet to tell what to do with them. Then they took unhewn stones, as the law directs, and built a new altar like the former one. We are further told by the book of Maccabees that, quote, early in the morning on the 25th day of the ninth month, which is the month of Kislev, in the 148th year, they rose and offered sacrifice, as the law directs, on the new altar of burnt offering which they had built. At the very season and on the very day that the Gentiles had profaned it, it was dedicated with songs and harps and lutes and cymbals. This, ladies and gentlemen, is a Chanukat HaMizbeach, another dedication of the altar. And this is why, in celebration of this achievement, an eight-day holiday was established that came to be known as Chanukah. Now, at the moment of its original establishment, there was no kindling of candles in every Jewish home. The days were celebrated with psalms of thanksgiving. And it was first and foremost the altar that was being celebrated, the resurrection in the temple of the worship of the Hebrew God. And it is in remembrance of this that when we celebrate Hanukkah today, the Torah reading in synagogue centers on our passage, on the recollection of the original altar dedication in the desert tabernacle, thereby linking the two events. But, ladies and gentlemen, around two centuries after the dedication of the altar by Judah the Maccabee, Jerusalem was destroyed. And the question then was obvious. What would happen to Hanukkah now? How can a holiday centered on the restoration of monotheism in the temple continue when the Roman pagans had succeeded in destroying the temple? And here, as I discussed in my Sacred Time series, the rabbis focused on a miracle which had originally occurred during Judah's cleansing of the temple. A small flask of oil that ought to have fueled a flame for one day instead lasted for eight, allowing the menorah, the candelabra of the temple, to burn so much longer than was expected, eight days in all. Now, the rabbis essentially said, we may not be able to celebrate the altar of monotheism in the temple for eight days, but we can mark this miracle and reenact it for eight days. After the destruction of Jerusalem, Jewry chose to remember that one small supernatural occurrence because they saw in it a powerful metaphor for the Jews themselves. If that flask could last, then so could we. If the flames of the temple menorah could burn beyond expectation, then even with Jerusalem destroyed, the beacon that was Judaism could survive. And fascinatingly, there is a source of scriptural inspiration for this evolution of commemoration. Immediately after the altar dedication in Numbers, we encounter chapter 8, verse 2. And the Lord said unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Aaron and say unto him, When thou lightest the lamps, the seven lamps shall give light toward the center of the menorah. And Aaron did so, he lighted the lamps thereof so as to give light toward the center of the menorah. All of a sudden, after the description of the dedication of the altar, the menorah 
which we have already encountered in the Bible, is discussed again. No explanation is given here for this juxtaposition. No scriptural segue is provided. But it does, intriguingly, also embody a pattern that would later take place in Jewish history. A holiday centering on the altar now suddenly focuses on the menorah. And in this focus, the sages, after the destruction of the temple, sought to communicate that the Jewish homes where the lamps were lit were the means by which the Jews would outlast their enemies, by which the small flask that was a tiny people would burn brightly and outlast all others. The lighting of the Hanukkah lamps heralded the fact that through many difficult centuries of exile, the luminous nature of Jewish bravery would blaze forth. We are now able, I think, to understand the meaning of Churchill's words, his refusal to refer to Britain's crisis as encompassing dark days. The truth is, of course, the darkness that descended across Europe and that threatened Britain was thick and terrible. Churchill is adding, however, that it is precisely in that moment that another form of brightness made itself known, the luminous nature of the courage of the human spirit. Churchill himself described Harry Hopkins, a sickly and infirm man who did much to bring America to support Britain during this time, with these words. Hopkins, Churchill said, was, quote, a soul that flamed out of a frail and failing body. He was a crumbling lighthouse from which there shone the beams that led great fleets to harbor, end quote. Meaning, at the most challenging of moments, what can make itself manifest is the extraordinary nature of the human spirit. Proverbs, as we have seen, tells us that the soul of man is the lamp of God. Like a flame, a soul, if fueled by courage, can reflect an extraordinary amount of power, defying all expectation. Churchill's statement thus allows us to see a deeper meaning here. Even after the temple was destroyed and a terrible exile descended upon Israel, the Jews endured because of what the light of the menorah embodies, that the soul of man is the candle of God. The splendid simplicity of kindling a candle can be spiritually sublime because it represents the light within ourselves. Do not say dark days, but stern days, Churchill said, for we must all thank God that we have been allowed, each of us according to our stations, to play a part. Those were his words. And it was in the very dark days of Jewish experience that the luminous light of the souls of Jews made themselves manifest. This is given voice in a magnificent midrashic statement on the biblical passages we are studying, noting that the lighting of the menorah follows in a seeming non-sequitur, the dedication of the temple altar. The rabbis suggest that God, here, is seeking to console Aaron for the fact that his tribe, that of the Levites, was not involved in the altar's dedication. God, therefore, in describing the menorah, is responding to Aaron, in the rabbi's words, Your lot in the tabernacle, your role in the ritual is greater than theirs. For you kindle and prepare the lights of the candelabra. Now, if we take the statement literally, as Nachmanides notes, the statement is strange. Aaron was the high priest. It was he who stood every day astride the altar. He alone who entered the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. Does he need to be told? that his portion in the tabernacle is greater than that of the princes who inaugurated and dedicated the altar? The rabbis, Nachmanini suggests, are not necessarily literally referring to the biblical moments in the desert. They are here literarily describing 
how even after the temple was gone and the altar was no more, one aspect of the daily ritual would be remembered. For Aaron's lighting of the menorah would be recreated in Jewish homes throughout the centuries, thereby embodying the light of Jewish fortitude itself. The altar and the menorah, that is the tale of Hanukkah. That is why on the last day of Hanukkah today, after reading in synagogue the end of the altar's dedication, Numbers 788, this was the dedication of the altar after it was anointed, we then read of Aaron kindling the lamps and close out Hanukkah with those words. Thus our chapters, the altar dedication, the biblical Hanukkah of the altar, and then the menorah lighting in the temple, can be seen as predicting the evolution of the holiday of Hanukkah. Or as Longfellow put it, in all the great traditions of the past, they saw reflected in the coming times. Fascinatingly, Churchill himself, in a wartime speech delivered during one of England's most desperate times, paraphrased the book of Maccabees, quoting words of Judah before battle. Churchill said, quote, Centuries ago, words were written to be a call and a spur to the faithful servants of truth and justice. Arm yourselves and be men of valor and be in readiness for the conflict, for it is better for us to perish in battle than to look upon the outrage of our nation and our altar. End quote. It is precisely dark times in history when we can also see the courageous radiance of the soul. One of my favorite stories appears in Natan Sharansky's memoir, Fear No Evil. Sharansky writes that when he realized in prison the Hanukkah was coming, he constructed a crude candelabra, which he lit every evening. On the sixth night of Hanukkah, the authorities confiscated his menorah and Sharansky declared a hunger strike. He was summoned to the office of the Soviet officer that ran the prison, a Major Osin. Sharansky offered a deal. If he could light the menorah in Osin's office, he would end the strike. Major Osin thought it over and then produced the menorah he had confiscated. A candle was brought in, and Sharansky responded that since it was the eighth night of Hanukkah, he needed eight candles. Instead of bringing him more candles, Major Osin took out a pocket knife and rendered the long candle into eight stubs. Sharansky placed the tiny pieces of wax in his menorah, and then he invented a Jewish law out of whole cloth. He told Major Osin that for the ritual to work, everyone present had to stand at attention, and after the blessing was concluded, everyone present had to respond, Amen. Amen. Major Osin agreed. Sharansky lit the candles and recited a prayer in Hebrew that went something like this. Blessed are you, God, for allowing me to rejoice on this day, the holiday of our return to the way of our fathers. Blessed are you, God, for allowing me to light the candles. May you allow me to light candles many times in your city, Jerusalem, with my wife, Avital, and my family and friends. And then, with the uncomprehending but attentive Soviet officer standing at his side, Sharansky, as he describes in his memoir, concluded his prayer in Hebrew with these words. May the day come when all our enemies, who today are planning our destruction, will stand before us and hear our prayers and say, Amen. And Matrosin immediately responded, Amen. Our enemies throughout our history sought, as Majorosin did, to hack away at the soul of man that is the candle of God. But in the end, our own spirits made manifest the mysterious eternity of the Jewish people just as the first flask of oil found in the temple did so many centuries ago. The light of the menorah is the light within ourselves, the capacity of the Spirit to make manifest a radiance in the darkest of times that allowed the Jews 
to overcome what Sharansky correctly called our enemies who are planning our destruction. To read of the menorah in the book of Numbers is to read of a ritual in the temple that we believe will one day occur again. But it is also to ponder a power within ourselves and to know of the luminous courage that blazed forth in dark days, serving thereby for us as a beacon and lighting the way forward to our future. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.